What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark Devone. Before we dive into this week's wonderful episode, we'd like to thank all of our sponsors. That's everyone listening to this show, all of our academates and our wonderful patrons who keep this podcast on the road. And this week we've had quite a few patrons jump in, Mark, haven't we? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, please please be standing and charge your glasses for Andy Livingston, Jenny Morris, Elaine Hastings, Anna Garcia Garnett, and Claire Sewell. You are all gods among all mortals, mere mortals. We love you all. Thank you so much. And seriously, without your support, uh, we we could not keep the podcast going. So we thank you sincerely from the bottom of our hearts. Absolutely. Thank you very, very much. And if you would like to join that wonderful group of merry men and women, please come along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. Now, Mr. Stay, I'm surprised you're not laid back on a bed, <laughs> taking it easy this week after a bonkers book launch last week. But here you are, upright and still smiling. Yes, I've had a, I've, it's been a whirlwind, a whirlwind uh, of a week. It's been such good fun. Um, cause we've got, uh, so we had the live launch for, um, uh, the Crow Folk, uh, which was just extraordinary. Uh, Queeve McDonald, uh, Queeve McDonald came on. There's no D at the end of his name. He came on. He was MC. He was just brilliant. He's dressed like a scarecrow. It was just fantastic. We had people dressing up in 1940s home front stuff, just as the invite suggested. Um, we had uh, Ian W. Sainsbury seeing us out with a proper 1940s knees up with knees up Mother Brown. Actually, he ended with We'll Meet Again, which people got back to me and said they're in tears. They were tearing up because wow. we're all still in lockdown over here and we will meet again some How sunny relevant. day, but God only yeah. knows when that's going to be. Do you know, <laughs> I hadn't even made so, yeah. that. Yeah, I hadn't even made that connection. I joined the party. And I've got to say, the thing I, I thought was so cool is you had a live a live feed with the BBC Radio, Kent. I mean, <laughs> was that was amazing. How that even happened technologically, I have no idea. I'm like, hang on a minute. You've got, the, you've got a guy live on air at BBC Kent, and he's joined you on your live stream, and, but you're chatting with him on the radio. It was a complete, like, it was genius. And I was like, this actually worked. I mean, I think back to our early days when we were, like, trying to press buttons and like, oh, no, yeah. look, can you see me? <laughs> Yeah. No, it was great. great. We was um, really there was Dominic King at the BBC, who's been on the podcast before because we did a we did a live show from um, Harbour Books in Whitstable, and he joined yeah. us on that as well, which was really good fun. Uh, but this was all it was great because I'm at the table here, which is my podcasting table. I've got my writing table over there. Ooh, get mm. me! He's got two tables. Look at you, two bloody uh, tables, mate. But, um, table envy. <laughs> I know, Mark. <laughs> two tables stay, and. Uh, <laughs> Emily was over there with a with a fella Kai, and they were using Streamyard, which um, we've used in the bestseller experiment Facebook group to do live chats with some of the uh, experiments there. And um, it's a lovely piece of kit. It's really nice. It's like uh, like live TV in that you know the controller can see three cameras, and it's like go to camera one, go to mm. camera two, run a banner with the email address across the bottom, run the head, and it's great. And so Emily was there pushing buttons, running the whole show. It was just fantastic. It was so yeah, slick, it's, it's and it's quite, so easy to use. It's quite bonkers when you think about it. I mean, when we, we kind of joke about what we do putting together a podcast. It's actually like doing a radio show. I mean, you think about all the work that goes into radio shows. That's really what a podcast is. But now you kind of like moved on to like broadcasting with like titles and oh, it was, it was super slick. I I love, love, love where this is going. I mean, I love particularly where this is going for authors. Like the the opportunities now of, of what we can actually do for a book launch. I mean, you know, you, you've 
we've had a lot of people on the show. I mean, you talked a lot about kind of the idea of launching a book. And I know on one of the discussions you had with Cueve on on the session was that this is now the way in which everyone should really be doing it. I mean, even if it's just a even if it's just a private party with friends and family, like this, everyone should be doing this because it's such a wonderful celebration and a connection as well. It's that human element to see you all. Um, to hear you, to hear everything, to see all the comments. It, it, it's such an event, which is so much bigger than just, oh, my book's on the shelf in a, in a local bookstore. Well, I mean, listeners, go back and listen to the episode we did with with Mark Edwards, uh, and I'll put a, a link in the show notes so you can, you can seek it out. I mean, you, you remember Mark was probably the first author that we knew of that did these live events, and long before, you know, lockdown or any of that palaver. And um, it... it it was one of those things, you know, you saw Mark doing it. And I think because he had a young family, he didn't want to have book launches or whatever, so he could do it from home. And the kids all came in and it was very much a family affair. And all his readers, you know, and you're making that connection with your your readers that you might not otherwise make. And I remember looking at Mark thinking, that's great. It's really unique. It's interesting. Maybe in a few years, authors will be doing it. And of course, lockdown has really pushed the accelerator down on all of that. And uh, I've seen a lot of authors traditionally published authors in particular who might normally go to festivals or bookshop signings, you know, who are thinking, okay, how do I reach my readers now? I mean, uh, Rowan Coleman, who was on a few episodes ago, uh, she, you know, she's written these um, books about the uh, the Bronte sisters solving mysteries. So she does readings from Jane Eyre on her Instagram channel, you know. So it's it's that thing of finding what the connection is with your readers and then, and then making it online. And because of lockdown, there's been a big boom in all these kind of video and audio technologies, these live streaming technologies, it used to be quite tricky and fiddly, but now it's it's made pretty easy. It is one of the actual benefits of lockdown. I mean, we know we focus on obviously all the challenges, but you know, when you think about this, I think there's been a lot more creativity that's come out of the fact that people have been restricted. But the crazy thing is, is that when you actually think, I mean, you think about it from a music perspective, obviously playing live, that's a huge loss like to people in the music industry right now. They, they, that's a huge part of their, their life. But for authors, we're not necessarily the most kind of like out and about kind of people. And when we're launching books, yeah, I mean, at the very highest level, you might do, you know, you know, a, a personal book tour of some big bookstores and do book signings and things. But for most authors, it is, it is kind of a, a, a localized, if anything, a local bookstore maybe. But now when you see that people are thinking, well, I can do this, everyone can do this. It's not restricted to major publishers. It, you know, I can do my own launch party. It, it's actually forced people to get so much more creative. And I think, you know, I've always said, what are going to be the benefits of, of this crazy period that we're experiencing? There's always an upside to every downside. And I think one of the upsides is we're not going to lose any of this when we're all back out like hugging and playing in playgrounds and enjoying like social life again, you know, post COVID, um, I do think that there's going to be a lot of things we're going to keep from this. And from a, from a writing perspective, that makes the opportunities available to indie authors in particular. Well, and, and every author really, I mean, let's face it, we, we, Every author has to do their their bit now. Whether, like you said, you know, you're you're signed to Simon and Schuster for this book, but you were working harder than you ever have for a book launch, right? So I'm excited to see what's going to happen. Um, I really do think it's going to be a lot of benefits. Well, my big my big concern is Simon and Schuster. Very early on, we you know they identified the high street as my main route to market. You know, so it was very much going to be an Indies and Waterstones in the UK. You know, so independent bookshops, Waterstones, big bookshop chain, uh, and of course they were shut. And I was thinking, you know, so we, how do we pivot? And the good thing is a lot of um, uh, indie bookshops are operating on click and collect. They have websites and what have you. Uh, and, of course, there's things like the uh, Hive in the UK, uh, which is one of the ways you can support independent bookshops and shop online. So uh, they, I was um, on Book of the Month uh, for February. I want to ask you about Hive. that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, let's yeah. dive into that because I know the word on everyone's lips, like having listened to the episode two weeks ago when we were we were kind of doing the, the, the just before the launch, how did it go? Like what was the outcome of the, the launch? I mean, you mentioned about the Hive. So tell us a bit about what happened with the Hive. Well, Hive, uh, they announced on Monday their, their charts. I'm in the top 20. Um, <gasps> yeah, yeah. <laughs> number 14. Wow. Um, so who, are you, is, who are you chasing down? Who, who, are the, who are the people you're kind of trying to leapfrog? Well, of course, Richard Osman is number one, you know. So oh, one well, Richard, you moment. watch your back, mate. Um, Most of stay uh, is on you. <laughs> Richard, Rich Osmond, for anyone who doesn't know this, I don't know how big this book is in 
outside of the UK. I'm mm, assuming it's question, quite actually, big. Yeah, yeah. But in the UK, this has been the phenomenon over the last few months. It was the biggest selling book at Christmas. I think it broke some crazy records, didn't it, in terms it of was the fastest just, it's, selling it's, The book. sales are just breathtaking. Just, and this just is a guy, incredible. for people that don't know, this is a guy who is, is it, is it I mean, oh, I'm in Canada. Is he still on the, is he still doing the... Um, the show oh, on yeah, Channel yeah. 4. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's po- uh, Pointless, is the, Pointless is the big show. Shout out to and, my mum um, who loves that show, by the way. Hi, yeah, man. and um, um, Richard Osman's, um, uh, what's it called? Big Game Night or whatever it is. I, I love that. I mean, I, I watch those every day. Uh, but yeah, he's just got this great mind and he signed this book deal. And it's just, it's, he has sort of almost national treasure status over here. So everyone just ran out and bought it. Um, yeah. It's a, you know, a lovely thriller. So, but yeah, Richard doesn't, Richard doesn't need any more publication. Well, I want to know Mark, I, I, publicity. I want to know, I want to know um, how it went for you last week. So you hit the top 20 in the hive, which is the, the national independent book charts. Is that right? Kind of, yes. I mean, not yeah. every indie has signed up to hive. Okay. Uh, independence or independence. I mean, I, I remember when hive first started, uh, it was like, you know, wrangling cats, you know, independents will do their own thing. Some were, mm. were interested, some some weren't, you know, and that's still the case, I think. In the States, they've launched something similar, bookshop.org, uh, which is launched in the UK as well. So you've got that over here now too. But mm-hmm. Hive was, as far as I know, one of the first ones to do this kind of thing. And um, they do it really well because they work in association with Gardeners, who's one of the biggest uh, independent um, book wholesalers in the UK who supply everyone, right. Amazon, Indies, Waterstones, they just supply everyone. And um, yeah, so it's kind of, you know, a lot of the major Indies uh, will will be signed up to Hive. So it's it's been great because my big worry was, are we actually going to, you know, have anywhere open that's selling the book? But I think the reason that... In, I mean, Indies, the high streets had a terrible time sort of the last 10 years with the internet stomping all over everything. Uh, but the Indies that have survived have done so because they have been fleet of foot. They've been really inventive. Mm. They've, you know, round here, they've been doing sort of local deliveries and click and collect. And um, they've they've really worked hard to provide the sort of stuff that certain big online retailers can't do, that personal touch, you know. Mm. So, um yeah, it's been it's been really really gratifying. I I know you know we've we've put a lot out there, so it's it's up to me now. The next stage is to make sure we sell as many as possible. Well, that's it, and it does. I mean, it's just the beginning, like we always say. Like the the mm-hmm. launch is the big the big event, the big moment. But now now it's the kind of the long haul, and it's about promoting that book for the rest of your life, Mister. <laughs> I mean, we know, but it is. Yeah. I mean, I still promote. You know, I'm still promoting music I wrote 15, 20 years ago. It's like you don't ever think of a book launch, and this is for our listeners out there that are thinking about launching their book. Don't make it all just about, or don't think that as soon as you've kind of announced that it's out and it's for sale, then you can just start writing your next book. You know, it is an ongoing process. Um, and you might find that, you know, your book takes off a year down the road or two months down the road, but the continuous pushing of that book and, and opportunities is so important, which is why we still mention on this podcast four years down the road that if you haven't bought Back to Reality yet, it's available in more good bookstores, <laughs> right? So um, I think one of the other things I saw, Mark, that I was really fascinated by was a post in the, I think it was in the BXP team, our, our kind of um, exclusive group for for patrons of this, of this podcast. Um, and it was of someone who... Um, said that they were on their a book club of theirs I have a, a book club online and somebody said oh I don't know which one of these three new books to read I'm having stress over and one of them was yours and it was somebody completely unrelated to the the group and the podcast that has just picked your book up randomly and and she showed this she forwarded this photo to the group didn't she yeah, and that's that's um, that's a really lovely sort of gratifying thing. I did suggest to her instead of just picking one to read, she should read alternate chapters for each one, just to really mess with her mind. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, story. I mean that, that's the that's the lesson you learn as an author is um, it's out there now. It's not my book anymore. It's their book, and yeah. they're reading it, and they're and we, we're in the middle of a blog tour at the moment as well. Simon Schuster have organised a blog tour, uh, and it's been great. Uh, for my ego, if nothing else, uh, because you're getting two what? or three blogs every now, day. Does that, does that mean that your people are writing blog posts about yeah. your book? It's not you appearing on, I mean, because obviously not live as such, but it's it's just a schedulized kind of 
releasing of, of reviews about on talking about, or have you done interviews with people as well? How does that work? Well, one of them, they, uh, they said, oh, can you do a 10 things about me blog post? And instead I've done a video for them, uh, which uh, by the time um, this episode goes out, it should be uh, live. Uh, and if it is, I'll pop a link in the show notes to it. Uh, uh, but yeah, sometimes they'll ask you, oh, can you write this? Can you write that sort of thing? Um, but th- generally these have just been, well, I say just been reviews. They've been amazing reviews. And mm. it's, um, uh, I, you know, we did, we did a, a blog tour for the audiobook of Back to Reality, which was great. Yeah. We did a blog tour for the end of Magic. Um, and this one has, has just been fantastic because I haven't had to organize it or, or chase people up about it. So, um, that's been fun and it's, uh, uh, people are loving it. It's really, it's, it's, it's really, really nice. It's, um, you know, people have their own take in it. Everyone's picking the stuff that they've enjoyed, uh, and it's different things each time. So it's, it's been a really, really, really lovely week. Um, I'm going to come down with a bump, you know, when you don't have a blog tour and suddenly people aren't saying nice things about your book. So you now, you now have to, and, and obviously after, you know, I've been collecting the quotes on a spreadsheet or the links to, each blog so that once all the hubbub has died down then i can you know i can schedule some social media with the quotes to keep that yeah. momentum going and actually that's a great great tip isn't it for people i mean we've we've done that a fair bit with things like the 200 word challenge um quotes about you know reviews about our book back to reality um it's something that we found if you don't do it when you see it you're creating a really big job for yourself later on. It's like so easy, yeah. just a screenshot, grab, stick it in a, a Google Doc or something, and then it's all there. And so every single author should have that because that actually, for me, you know, that that page of quotes and comments, you know, the feedback that you get about your book, that is like that kind of box of letters that the teacher gets from the students that they kind of can dip into when having <laughs> a really bad day and they think, oh, why am I doing this? They can open that little box and they can pull out those letters from those students. And say, you won't remember me, but um, <laughs> 20 years ago, you told me uh, I should really try, try, you know, I'm a really good writer and I try and I just wanted to let you know, I just published my first book, or, you know, that kind of letter, but to have that place, collect them as you go. And then like you say, Mark, you've got kind of content for, for social media posts. Um, yeah. Great for pitches. If you're going to be pitching future books to publishers, you know, having those kind of testimonials, so important. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've got a Google spreadsheet with various tabs. So one just has things like all the buy links and the ISBNs. Because, you know, it's one of those things where you go, oh, what's the ISBN of the book? So do I go to Amazon and scroll down? And then you discover yes. Amazon doesn't show them anymore, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So I've got them all on a nice Google spreadsheet, along with um, things like uh, people that we sent the book to for quotes, along with the social media quotes, uh, along with, um, you know, a, a sort of a launch plan as well. Uh, so it was all in one doc that I could share with everyone at Simon & Schuster and they could dip into it and see what I was doing and they could add their own stuff to that as well. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, this it's kind of all the little things I've learned along the years, all the mistakes I've made. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. I've sort of, you know, put into this. And it's really a good, important point, like being organized like that, especially around the book launch, because there's so much going on. It can save you a huge amount of time. So. Great tip. Excellent stuff. Now, we've got some really exciting news to uh, announce for a couple of our listeners. Some really amazing things have happened to them this week. We're going to do that after our interview. Um, And we're also going to be doing any social media. So if you've been kind of posting to us on Twitter, on Facebook, um, telling us about how you've been getting with your books and the like, stick with us until the end of the show to see if you get a mention. But moving swiftly on, Mark, this week's interview is a one of our, we're welcoming back a guest who we have had several times on the show already as deep dives. And now he has his feature spot on the back on the bestseller experiment. So tell us about David Bishop. Yes, this is David's hat trick. He's his third time on the show. So uh, episode one, I Nine, which was a deep dive. He did a masterclass on writing comics. Uh, episode 197, he talked about creative writing courses, but he's here today with his author hat on as D.V. Bishop. Uh, he's an award-winning screenwriter and TV dramatist. His crime fiction uh, debut, City of Vengeance, won the Pitch Perfect competition at Bloody Scotland in 2018 and is now published by Pam Macmillan in a two-book deal. He was awarded the Robert Louis Stevenson Fellowship by the Scottish Book Trust while writing the novel, and he's still program leader for the creative writing course at Edinburgh Napier University. And uh, it's an absolutely fascinating chat. Brilliant. So let's dive in and have a listen with Mark interviewing 
the wonderful D.V. Bishop. David Bishop, welcome back to the bestseller experiment. How are you today, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me yet again. Oh, absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. And, uh, you know, this is a real treat because today you've got your author hat on with a fantastic new book, the first in a new series set against the backdrop of the Medici dynasty in 1530s Renaissance Florence, City of Vengeance. And this sounds absolutely amazing. Tell tell us about this, this wonderful book, David. So, yeah, it is my historical thriller crime debut, published in February 2021 by uh, Pam McMillan. And it tells the story of uh, Cesare Aldo, who's uh, an officer for the most feared criminal court in Renaissance Florence. But Aldo, although he's an officer of the court, he's also he lives on the wrong side of the law due to his sexuality, although they didn't have the term at the time. He's a gay man in a time and place where that makes him a criminal in the eyes of the law, which he enforces and upholds. And uh, he investigates the murder of a Jewish moneylender. And in doing so, he uncovers a plot to overthrow Duke Alessandro, the Medici, the ruler of Florence in this period in history. And so Eldo has a challenge. He's basically got four days to try and solve this mystery The question is whether he'll be able to stop the conspiracy or will his own secrets destroy him first? Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Now, I can see why this period appeals to writers because there's there's everything going on here isn't there this is this is sex and violence and religion and sexuality all these amazing things going on because the question we always love to ask writers when whenever they're writing anything about any kind of historical period is the sort of research that you do and how you stop yourself putting it all onto the page how, how did that work for you Oh, well, gosh, I mean, researching this was years and years of effort. I mean, it started, I picked up a book just by chance in a bookshop uh, near the the British Museum, and this is like maybe 20 years ago, and I just, there was one sentence in it which just said that the, the criminal justice system in Renaissance Florence in this period, in the early 16th century, was roughly equivalent to a modern police force. And it was just like, light bulb, ding, 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 ding. And that just sent me down a rabbit hole of research. And I spent years not writing this book because of, uh, simply, I wasn't confident that I knew enough about the time and the place and the period. You know, I'm not Italian. I don't speak Italian. So in order to find any texts about the period, they all had to be into translation. So the challenge was, eventually, I realized I could never know everything. And this is the thing with research. You can never know everything. And even if you do know everything, you can't put it all on the page because that becomes these massive tomes that's just jammed full with everything you ever discovered. And the reality of research, I mean, it's a great procrastination tool and work displacement tool. But the reality is if you get, if 5% of the things that you discover end up on the page, that's probably still too much. Because I always have, this is, I mean, I I run the creative writing program at Edinburgh Napier University in Scotland. And one of the things I tell my students is that your characters are only going to notice things that are new to them. So if they live in a place, then the only thing they're going to notice about the place possibly is the weather or if something new has occurred or something is missing. We, you know, human beings as, as animals, we only notice difference. We don't notice something that's the same day after day. So this, it's the same with research. You can't have characters wandering around observing everything because that's simply not how we tend to see the world around us. And so it should be with your characters. Absolutely. I, I'm fascinated by this idea of years not writing this, you know, having that almost like a discipline to not jump in. Because I, I think sometimes if you jump in too soon, you can. it makes you realise just quite how much you don't know. Is that something you've experienced before? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's the things that you don't know. It's it's are the traps that you worry you're going to step into. And if you're doing anything that's uh, specialized or has a specialist knowledge, it's the things that always leap out at you. I mean, I used to be a, a newspaper reporter, literally last millennia, and it always fascinates me when I watch people depicting reporters from the '60s and the '70s, even into the '80s, and they're typing on actual manual typewriters. 
And then I, I you know, but if they don't use carbon paper, I'm like, how on earth did they make copies of anything? That's ridiculous. So it's uh, it's those little details that people get wrong. And that if somebody has any expertise in a subject, that's what will pop you out of the book or the TV show. And so that's the thing that you worry about doing research is that, oh, you know, I will I get this wrong? Have I called this the wrong thing? So it's it was one of those things where you think, I can't leap into this too soon because I know I could make a terrible Horlix of it if uh, if I get it wrong. So I spent years sort of building up the confidence in myself as a writer before I wanted to tackle this because I knew this was going to be, uh, as it is, the start of a series. I wanted to do it justice. And it's often the ideas that you sit on and that you wait and that you hold back from writing that end up being the the more complex stories to tell because you give yourself a chance to think beyond that initial enthusiasm, that burst of excitement of ideas that you have when you get a new idea and the temptation to rush and to write it instantly. Whereas if you can sit back and let it sort of, uh, you know, simmer away, then you will have the better idea that you build upon that initial impetus. It's There's a theory somebody once told me about uh, if you make – uh, curries or chilies, how they're often better the second day because yes. they've had a time for everything to marinate in. And I think storytelling is a little bit like that as well. I think you're absolutely right because the thing is you have an idea, you have this idea of a concept, which is, okay, a Medici police force, fantastic. Then you do all this research, but, of course, none of that is story, none of that is really character. When did the point come where you thought, actually, I've got a protagonist, I've got enough fuel in the tank for a story here. When 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 do you know that point comes? Oh, it's 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 hard. It's hard to know. And also because I was writing this uh, on spec, I've written a lot of um, uh, tie-in novels in the past and a lot of things to contract, as it were. You know, hired gun, ink slinger kind of writer is my <laughs> past. Uh, and then I sort of set that aside and went off to become a screenwriter for a while. And then when I came back to writing prose... It was the challenge of had I reached a point where I could write the book and it was trying to force myself to start actually having held back for so long, standing beside the swimming pool, sticking my toe in the water going, oops, it's still cold. Um, eventually you have to sort of, you know, nobody was waiting for me to write this book except me and I'd been talking about it for decades and boring my poor partner and, and, and other people with it. And finally I thought, oh, just put up or shut up, Bishop. But in order to force myself to do it, I started a PhD in creative writing. And this book is the book that uh, is the, the the basis of my PhD, which I still haven't finished. The book's coming out next week as we record this. <laughs> I still haven't finished the PhD. My apologies to the people of Lancaster University. <laughs> That's brilliant. How does that work then? How does that work? I mean, that's... Um... <sighs> That is absolutely fascinating, this idea that it's part of your PhD and it's coming up before you finish the PhD. I mean, (laughs) explain yourself, David. (laughs) Cut, horse, stable door. (laughs) It's all gone wrong. Um, Yeah, most creative writing PhDs, people may have published sections of it, particularly if they're poets, they may have published chunks of it. It's... uh, the idea that somebody could write a novel on a creative writing PhD and it can have gone through the entire publication process, which, as you all know, is not necessarily the fleetest of foot. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I signed the contract for this book in, uh, I guess it was the summer of 2019. Yeah, that would be right. And it's coming out now. So it was a long wait for the book to be published and the editorial process and all the rest. And what I was doing that whilst I was doing the PhD at the same time. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it was not my plan. Um, and I'm actually, I've been told, I've, I've got a new supervisor now, but my previous supervisor told me that actually if you do a creative writing PhD and your book is published before you complete the PhD and present your, your dissertation and you have your viva, they call it, where you get sort of grilled for several hours, sometimes it can actually make the job harder for the examiners because they're like, well, the book's kind of done, really. It's been published. There's nothing, there's not much to talk about there. 
you know, we can't really say, oh, it's not publishable standard if somebody can hand you the hardback. Um, <laughs> so, so as a consequence, of course, a creative writing PhD is not just the book itself. You also have to do the critical element, the research, the examination of things. And that's the bit where I suspect the, the giant searchlight of doom will come sweeping in my direction. <laughs> I, I mean, I... You have to show you're working when you're doing a PhD. So were you feeding chapters to people for feedback and how, how did that how did the whole thing develop? I mean, are you an outliner? Do you do you do you just write by the seat of your pants? How how did the how did that actually work? I mean, for a creative writing PhD, you're expected to submit work. I mean, I'm doing mine part-time. So you expect to, in my case, I was expected to submit something once a month, whatever it might be. That might be uh, chapter notes that might be you know exploration of character register or voice whatever the case is or actual draft chapters so that's what I was submitting when I was doing my PhD and and getting feedback from my supervisor which was hugely helpful it was one of the reasons why I did a, a creative writing PhD one was I would have somebody sort of effectively standing over me with the whip going uh chapter please because I was writing it, I wasn't under contract. It was entirely on spec. So I it enforced deadlines upon me because, you know, being a writer, the temptation to slack off, procrastinate, or, or just disappear down a YouTube research rabbit hole is you know, strong uh, in this one. So I wanted the discipline of having somebody expecting me to produce work and also then to get the, the feedback along the way and to have my ideas challenged before so the book would be in the best possible shape before it was you know ready to go out to an agent because it's I needed a, a literary agent I didn't have a literary agent at that point so that was the the purposes of that but in terms of outlining I mean I had a a very very rough outline but essentially I had a 5x structure because the first book a city of vengeance follows the timetable of history it takes place over 12 days and it follows real events that occurred in the winter of 1536 in Renaissance Florence. So the history provided my timetable, but then I had to structure a compelling, enjoyable, page-turning story around history. And history actually is all over the shop. You know, history <laughs> is really badly structured, um, as, you know, the past year has shown us. Um, yes. <laughs> So, you know, if you were if you were writing this, you would do a better job um, of recent events because people would go, oh, this is not credible. They cannot get that wrong again. Um, but <laughs> no, yes, they can. Um, leaving that aside. So, yeah, so I had a, a very rough outline of how I was going to write it. But uh, previously, when I was doing a sort of work for hire tie-in books, you absolutely, you had to do a complete chapter breakdown moment by moment, everything that was going to happen in the story. And it's the same with screenwriting. Uh, I used to write for uh, a show called Doctors on BBC One, a daytime medical drama, continuing drama series. And for that, you had to give, you know, you had to give beat by beat, moment by moment, scene by scene, everything that was going to happen in the story before you started writing an actual draft, before you got a contract. So that was my discipline. That's what I tended to do. And for this one, I thought, no, I'm going to give myself the freedom or more freedom because one of the problems sometimes if you slavishly follow an outline or a synopsis is that you don't give yourself as a writer the opportunity to have the better idea, to let those sort of moments of serendipity and all the happy accidents and the, and the, and the characters that wander in and suddenly make themselves known in your story, you've got to allow room for the better idea rather than just following the sort of the template that you made for yourself a year ago and events have moved on and you, you've learned more about your characters and the world and it's developed. And if you keep following the same rigid path, uh, the danger is you end up with plot driving your characters instead of, yeah. you know, characters doing what they want to do and what they would logically do in the situation as events transpire. So an example in, in City of Vengeance was there's uh my central character, my detective, Cesare Aldo, uh, he was investigating the murder of this Jewish moneylender and he knocks on the door and the Jewish doctor of the community at the time comes out and invites him in to, 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 to ask his questions. And then uh, Aldo um, sort of starts admiring the, the, the broadness of the doctor's shoulders and sort of going, oh, he's got very nice eyes. And I was going, well, this was not in the plot. <laughs> um, but suddenly this romance blossomed out of nowhere um, in the book. And I was like, 
oh, okay, all right, well, this is interesting. Let's see where this goes. And uh, the, the the character, Dr. Saul Orvieto, he's now a, a major character in book one, and he, he carries on into book two, which I'm just finishing drafting at the moment. I mean, it's just a thing, isn't it? It's, it's all very well outlining something, but once you get those characters on their feet, interacting, making choices, living with the consequences, it can throw up some really interesting stuff that you kind of you, you kind of have to roll with, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. This is why I I always uh, I when I when I every now and then I will re listen to the episode of the bestseller experiment where Ben Aronovich tears you and the other Mark. <laughs> Thanks for quite that. a new one <laughs> with the bizarre notion that you're going to write or that you had written a 50,000 word outline for what I presume was a novel of less than a thousand words. <laughs> but, mm, yeah. Obviously, you've learned from this experience. Um, <laughs> Well, I was uh, I was talking to Adele Garras about this uh, for an episode. That I'm not sure it's probably coming out after this episode, so stay tuned, listeners. Where she outlines very, very heavily as well. She does those outlines that are tens of thousands of words long. But she says for her, it's essentially doing what pantsers will do. Doing what she, she's essentially doing a very, very detailed outline, which is essentially a kind of a thin first draft you know i'm not making excuses for myself but everyone will have their uh, have their own way of doing it we, we, i mean weirdly i've gone completely the other way now i you know it's it's basically i uh three pages of an outline and boom off i go you know so it's uh it's uh it's it's changed very very dramatically for me but oh I'm, yeah i just i mean it's uh, exactly what you say i mean I'm, and there are right it's a massive spectrum Okay, from the sort of Stephen King, I've got an idea for two guys, a car, and something weird in the boot, and I'm going to write a thousand, a thousand page novel off the back of that. To John Irving, who's at the other end of the spectrum, who sounds like uh, the, the the writer you're talking about, and John Irving, who wrote, you know, World According to Garp and Cider House Rules mm. and Prayer for Owenmini, you know, he will plot everything down to the absolute nth degree before he starts writing. Because he says then he can just concentrate on the language. He doesn't have to worry about what's going to happen next or whose point of view the next scene is or how I'm going to get out of this hole uh, because he solved those problems before he started. So effectively, it is like a pantser, as you say. It's like a, a pantser, a first draft for a pantser is trying to figure out what's going to happen. And then they go back and write the actual story, having learned about the characters of the world and the, and the narrative as they've gone along through that, that first vomit draft. So, yeah. And yeah, I'm I'm doing what you do. So the the second Cesare Alde novel, which I'm, oh, I think within a week of finishing the first draft, for that one I deliberately, again it's a crime story, but I thought right I'm going to try the sort of the Ian Rankin method of I have no idea who done it, right. so I literally got to I think it was yesterday I got to 122,697 <laughs> words. <laughs> And I had to type the sentence that had the name of the person who'd done it in it. And I went, um, okay, who's it going to be? Eeny, meeny. And, and, and I went, you're right, it's them. The second book is set in a convent. And uh, the sort of the big reveal in the book is that they walk into the scriptorium and discover the dead, naked body of a man who's been stabbed 27 times and is covered in blood. And they're like, well, he shouldn't be here. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and thus the mystery is, is, is set in motion. But, yeah, I had no idea who done it until yesterday. Yesterday afternoon was like, all right, okay. I mean, I'd, I'd lined up some candidates and finally I went, it's you. Okay, there we go. <laughs> so I suspect I've got some rewriting ahead of me to just to, to yes. tie that off and justify the decision I've made. But, you know, the readers of the finished novel will never know any of that. Unless they they yes, they won't see the joins, will they? That, that's the trick to go back and make sure no one sees the joins. Yeah, yeah. This is it's really interesting to me because you're, you're – I'm thinking the process of both books is is drastically different. I mean, when you're writing, and I've I've just finished the second book in my series, and it's great because I know my protagonist and I know where I'm taking her. I know where I want her to end up. It's not as much of a process as discovery as it is in the first draft, which I, I'm sure you're finding with Cesare in in this book as well. But also, you know, the the first book you had that wonderful luxury of having that thing of giving it to someone and getting feedback very quickly you know chapter by chapter as part of the phd do, do you miss that yeah yeah i do i mean i was uh i i didn't let anybody see a page of book two 
until I think I got to 80,000 words. And then just before Christmas, I gave, I gave the first 80,000 words to my agent to, to have a read of over the Christmas break if she was feeling great. And, and she said very nice things when she read it. So that was fine. Um, <laughs> but it's, it was sort of, I mean, of course, once you've written a book in a series, the first book in a series, you, I mean, you know, you can do it, you know, you've written stuff yeah. before, you know, you, you, you have a level of competency and confidence in your, craft and ability as a writer to pull things off at least hopefully I mean we're all you know the long dark tea time of the soul comes for all of us as writers at some point in the course of a novel where you go oh why um, what <laughs> am I doing but you know you just have to push through and go well this bit's going to be a bit sticky and I mean I was worried I seem to recall I was a little worried about the pacing of this one but I've had, you know, so my agents read the first 80,000 words. I gave my editor the first 30,000 words to have a to have a quick look at just because he needs to decide what it's going to be called. I'm terrible at titles at transcripts. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, should not have come as a surprise. Almost everything I've ever written has had a different title stuck on it by somebody in the process. They should not let me write titles at all. But, yeah, so it is it is that thing of, and, of course, the second book, Syndrome, is because it's, you know, you've had however many years to write book one in a series and then suddenly it's book two. And now you've got a year because you said you'd write a book a year and that's the nature of series publishing and, and series fiction is that the ability to, to produce another book. So that becomes its own challenge and you have just have to have confidence in yourself and a certain momentum. But, yeah, as you say, you've done some of the hard work. You've invented this character. You've created the world. You're starting to build a supporting cast of characters I mean, often some people don't make it from book one to book two. And this one, you know, the challenge I had with this one, because it's set inside a convent, I had to invent an entire world of the convent and then all the nuns to populate it. And they all had to have personalities and faces and, you know, plus the challenge of describing a nun is that they all look exactly <laughs> the same except for the face <laughs> and the hand. That's all you've got. It's true. So I'm like, oh, why? Why possess me? <laughs> So uh, what's next for you, David? Because looking at, you know, you've been on the show twice already and it's destroyed. You've written comics, you've written screenplays, you've done courses, you've, you know, all sorts of extraordinary stuff and you're still doing a PhD, apparently. Will we be seeing more from uh, Cesare? Yes, yes. Uh, like I say, I've been, I've been writing book two during mm -hmm. lockdown. Ironically, during the book, uh, the nuns all get enclosed in their convent and are not allowed <laughs> to go outside. I can't think what inspired that. Um, so yes, book two, which currently has the working titles of either Blood Nuns and Consequences, which is not going to be the title, or And Then There Were Nuns, <laughs> not going to be the title. I can see why they don't let you know the titles, yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, tonally that would not really capture the book either. So book two, Cesare uh, Aldo 2, as yet to be titled, is due out in February next year just after the paperback of book one comes out. And then, of course, it's dependent upon sales as well as there's a book three, then welcome to publishing. So, yeah, once I finish book two, then uh, back to my PhD because I have to suspend studies on that uh, for six months, A, to finish book two, and also because of the course I teach went online very suddenly thanks to lockdown. Mm. We've had to reinvent the entire program for fully online delivery, which has been its own special challenge. I mean, I'm lucky in that it's a postgrad program Everybody who takes our program is growing up. So it's not like, you know, my heart goes out to primary school teachers trying to teach seven-year-olds at the end of the other end of a, of a laptop that may or may not be working, depending upon Russian malware. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a tough job to have. And then, so book two's finished, back to the PhD, still teaching four days a week. And then my other job is I have an original graphic novel which I've co-created with an artist called Rory Coleman. And we are going to be, hopefully, launching that as a Kickstarter, probably March or April of this year, just depending upon how things go. So that's, that's in my copious spare time. I'm going to be doing a Kickstarter project. Fantastic. Well, look, look, come back again. Let us know how that went. Take us through the whole process. We love this. We love your adventures, David. Thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. And uh, folks, City of Vengeance, 
out now. Get in there. Have fun in Florence, 1536. It's all going. It's all very, very bloody. Uh, so enjoy. And David, speak to you again soon. Thank you very much. Do you know, you have to be a certain kind of incredible slash insane person to want to do a historic novel. <laughs> Well, as, right? as he said, history is really badly structured, and oh. uh, you know it's uh, it's funny because I'm writing a, a short story at the moment, which is set in, in an historical period, and what you try to look for are the gaps in history, you know, the bits where you can where you know if someone you know that someone was here there and someone was there, and then you got a couple of days gaps, or you know there was something there's a bit of mystery here, so can you slip that in and and create your own reality? In between the cracks of history, that's that's the thing I like doing. But yeah, yeah you've got to. Um, it's it's uh, you've you've got to get it right because otherwise people will bring you up on it. I have so much respect. Like listening to that interview, I know we've 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 talked to a lot of incredible authors who who write you know novels set in set in different different eras, and we've talked a lot about the amount of research and time that goes in to actually getting things right. But listening to David, it's something really clicked today. I thought you know. Um, you have to be so fascinated by that era. If you're going to go like what we did when we, when we did some, I mean, I remember doing research for back to reality, but it was things like diving into, you know, some of the, um, weird stuff about pyramids, for example. And it was so much fun because it gives you so much, so many ideas, but we were using that almost in a fantasy sense. We were taking something that happened in history and thought, how can we play with that and have some fun with it in a fantasy sense, which is total license to not have to stick to the rules, but historical novels and research and i know you did a lot as well for your for your crow folk book as well mark around the war but it really does it's it's a whole other discipline alongside writing the book i mean i see it as a like you write the book but then there's this whole other massive project of like learning about the era that you want to focus on yeah yeah you've got to be passionate about it uh and want to go there again and again and again and it's um you know and without wearing all that uh Wearing it lightly on your novel without, you know, drowning the book in, in you know, oh, look how clever I am uh, with the research. And I think that's something David's done really brilliantly with this. Certainly if you read the reviews, you know, you like to feel that you you visited a place that you've been there. You've got the smells and the textures and the atmosphere and everything. But there isn't – you're not being lectured. You're not, you're not being bored by, you know, uh, you know by some dry uh, lecture on, on the period. So it's, um, it's a really, really fine line. Uh, to walk. Yeah, it's a bit like being a tour guide, isn't it? As opposed to a, a presenting presenting a, a something in a museum. That's the way I yeah. think of it. It's like you go in on the bus tour with them, and you're getting all of the senses enlightened. So I think it's I think it's incredible. But one thing that one thing that did strike me, and I never thought of this before, and this is what I love about these interviews, is there's always something which makes you see something in a completely different way. Um, David just popped into the chat you had about how. People that lived in that era didn't notice the normal things, mm. which for yeah, us yeah. looking back would have been completely, you know, would be the kind of highlights of, wow, look how they look at the, you know, technology they had back in the 1500s, for example. And it just, I just only thought, yeah, actually, from writing a book's perspective, that's a massive challenge, isn't it? Because as the author, you want to say, oh my gosh, they were doing these crazy things, but that might have been normal for them. Yeah. And that applies as much to, science fiction and fantasy as well, where you don't want your character saying, hey, I'm going to shoot you with my ray gun, which fires these blazer beams and does this and blah, blah, blah. Or I've got this magic sword yeah. that does this and blah, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, it needs to be every day. It needs to be something that's ordinary to them. And it's it's the, the trick is to somehow fold that into the story. I mean, one of the wonderful things about uh, watching something like Star Wars was nothing was ever explained. You know, no one ever said, you, you know, this is what hyperspace is. Well, actually, tell a lie. Han Solo did. And it's a brilliant bit of exposition because he says it's not like dusting crops. You know, you get something wrong, you fly straight into a supernova. And that's all you need to know. And it's in a really exciting bit. But no, no one explained how anything worked. Or yeah, like a lightsaber. Like, how did that turn on? 
Exactly. Like, right. Exactly. What, what, it what just it there? just worked. It yeah. just worked. Never run and out of batteries. Like, what was all that about? That would have been a brilliant <laughs> exactly. moment. And then like, oh crap, I forgot my what are the fat ones? You've got the Is fat ones. Hands, what are the Does fat ones? Double A's. Yeah, what no no, we need the fat ones. What are those ones? The D, oh, D's? Is C. It? The C. The C. No one sells C. No one sells C's anymore. And you've got meanwhile, you've got the stormtroopers standing there going, What the bloody hell are they talking about? That would be a brilliant scene. You see, that would be a good scene in Star Wars. They, they missed out on one there, didn't they? I don't think it would. <laughs> I'd, love, I'd love that, so, though. Yeah. Just like, like trying to turn it on. Like, what? what, what? They never, have they ever done that? You, you're, you're a Star Wars buff. Have they ever done a lightsaber scene where the lightsaber doesn't actually turn on? They've done it in the books. Ah. See, I knew That's you'd know this kind of thing. Right. <laughs> Challenge to George, George, if you're listening... I think what we want is we want somebody... George isn't running the show anymore. George is retired. Yeah, I yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. But maybe he can still have put a mention in and just say, yeah, actually, we need to use that. And so when we see it, we'll say, look, look, what, we, look what we did, Mark. You see that in the... Anyway. <laughs> but yeah, C batteries. Um, the, uh, yeah. Available from late night garages everywhere. <laughs> um, but the, the, the death of narrative are the words, as you know. Okay, so you know, if you've got two characters and you know they're saying, as you know, the Medici, blah 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 blah. I mean, that's gonna that's gonna kill your story because you yeah. know. So you've got to figure out ways to weave it in. The example I always give actually is George Lucas again. Um, uh, although probably Lawrence Kasdan uh, should be credited with this is in Raiders of the Lost Ark, where there's this expositional scene which is so brilliantly done, you don't notice it, and it's where the two uh, uh, Secret Service guys turn up. Uh, at Indiana Jones's college, and they want to know about the staff of Ra and Abner Ravenwood and the Ark of the Covenant and everything. And in lesser hands, they would have sat down and said, Indiana Jones, right, here's what we want you to do. We want you to find the staff of Ra. Here's this guy, Abner Ravenwood, and blah, and explain it all to him. What they do is they get it wrong, and he explains it to them. They, they come oh. in and say, oh, we think Abner Ravenwood, we think he's a, a Nazi spy. I say, no, no, he's not. And the staff of Ra, and he says... And he explains it to them. He corrects them. So mm. not only are you getting all the exposition you need, not only does your hero have agency, but you're also, you know, leaning forward and going, okay, you've got a bit of conflict there as well. He's telling these guys and he's proving that he's the best guy for the, the job. And it's so brilliantly done. It's, it's one of the best examples of exposition I've ever seen. That's excellent stuff. Brilliant. Excellent stuff. What else jumped out for you, Mark, in that interview? Because you've interviewed David a few times now. Yes, well, I thought um, trouble with titles is was an interesting one, um, and it, it, it's it's interesting that he's because I get quite precious about titles, and the film I've written is getting a title change, and I can't reveal what it is yet. There's going to be some sort of announcement. I so. wondered if that might happen. I mm. did wonder if that might yeah, happen. Yeah, 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 mm. yeah. So that that's changing. So it's always interesting, and you know, of course, we we had this uh, a, a few weeks ago as well with um, with a rich leader who was saying that of you know all the the few dozen or so screenplays he's ever written. I think he said like three or four ended up with the title that he started with. You know, that always have title changes. So it's 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 great that he's not too precious about titles, and of course, the old debate about outlining pantsing it's all there for you to listen to i mean it's it's um uh, it's interesting he still he even david still remembers the the benaronovich episode i know which, it just uh, yeah. comes up almost every week doesn't it i i, what I, what, I swear what, if i get if i get any kind of fame if there's any kind of obituary i swear that bloody <laughs> benaronovich episode your, is going to be in there your wikipedia <laughs> entry mark when you snuff it it's just gonna say exactly, yeah. the bloke that was followed by, well, benaronovich. by benaronovich that'll be yeah, it right yeah. um but, but the the interesting thing is is that when you know again another kind of moment where this is is this blurring of plotting and pantsing. I mean, there's this wonderful debate, and we know that there is not kind of like a, a, a kind of a hard and black and white line between you're either this or that, or something in the middle. But I do think I do I do like the idea that you can you can pants an outline, you you can pants an outline that you're plotting. And I Absolutely. love that idea. It's like, well, why can't we all just make peace and instead of having like, I'm a plotter, yes. just all make, you know, all like make love, not war, right? Amen. You, if, 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 you're, if you're pantsing, then you're pantsing your plot, right? Yep. And if you're plotting, then you've probably pantsed it in your head already or you're pantsing it as you go. I mean, it's- We've, this, we've got a couple of episodes coming up. Adele Garas, who gets a mention in this, um, she 
work the way I work, which is she does really detailed out- outlines, but she said essentially all she's doing is writing a very, very thin first draft. And then we've got Dean Wesley Smith uh, a couple of weeks after that who writes in the dark. He just he has no clue where he's going. I'll tell you what, s- subscribe just for that episode, folks. Really? Dean Wesley Smith, probably coming middle of May. Uh, just extraordinary interview. I love him to bits. When you said writing in the dark, I instantly thought of those restaurants. There was a restaurant <laughs> opened up here locally recently, and it was the dark restaurant. Well, it was actually ran, yeah, 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 it was yeah. ran by a guy who was actually blind mm. as well. It was incredible. Unfortunately, it didn't make it through COVID because it, it launched it timing-wise. But... but oh. I just suddenly had a thought of, of um, writers actually literally turning the lights off. <laughs> if anyone's ever done, if anyone's ever done that intro to art where you have to pick up a pencil, who have done this, Mark? You pick up a pencil mm-hmm. and, and you have to imagine something in your head, but you're not allowed to look at the paper and you try drawing it. It's actually quite incredible how bad it looks, but also actually how how it does actually resemble the thing that you're imagining and i wonder if anyone here's a question is there anyone out in the world that has ever actually written a book in literally in the dark they've actually like so that they sensorily they're turning off you know their vision so they're not having to focus on spelling errors for example and they just scribble there must be someone that's done it and if they haven't everyone try it this week and tell us what it was like do one page of completely black you know pitch black writing (laughs) <laughs> who knows you might discover something interesting Apart from a lot of ink uh, on your desk exactly yes <laughs> well listen uh, talking of future episodes uh, do subscribe we've got some amazing people coming up mm. we've got Linwood Barkley Linwood Barkley ladies and gentlemen we've got Mitch Ben we've got Adele Garras we've got Ellie Barker we've got Andrew Hunter-Murray Dean Wesley-Smith we've got some fantastic names each of them Completely different. Each of them has a completely different approach to writing. You know, this is the thing I love about this podcast. There's no one way of doing it. They've all got their own way of doing it. You're gonna you're gonna get something amazing from each of these. From Do subscribe everyone. on your podcatcher of choice yeah. for this wonderful yeah. stuff. And, and actually, for people that te- you know technically, are, what, what's a subscribe? I've never actually said this. Every on the podcast. Well, how do you subscribe to a podcast? Well, if you're listening to us on Apple on Apple Podcast, there is a there is a subscribe button near the top of the page. You have to go to the bestseller experiment podcast on whichever, you know, whether it's Spotify, Google, um, I think it's YouTube music now, um, any, any of those different. And and if you get one of these apps where um, it's like an Android app or an iPhone app, and you've got tons of different, you know, you can choose everything in that app. Again, look for the subscribe button. What that actually does folks is if you click on that, it will automatically deliver each new episode that we put live to your device or your computer, whichever you listen to us on. And so you don't have to think about it. You will just, we'll just show up usually every Monday morning, if you're in the UK or Sunday evening, if you're outside of the UK and, um, and what that actually does for us, which is why we were always bang on about subscribing is it actually increases the exposure that the podcast gets in all of these different worlds. So, um, in terms of us trying to get out to more and more writers, if you subscribe, then you're also basically helping other writers discover the bestseller experiment, which we will love you for and other writers will love you for. And we'll explain why, because there's a couple of writers that discovered us through the podcast and something amazing (laughs) happened to them. Should we dive into that? What a brilliant segue. What a brilliant segue. Did you write that? That was fantastic. Well, uh, this is, uh, I mean, we're just our supporters are we're just blown away by how they've done you know when we started this podcast we said to people if you got a half written book in a drawer beat us to it you know and uh our listeners are just amazing and not one but two of our listeners had some great news uh last week the romantic novelist association in the uk announced its shortlist for the 2021 romantic novel awards and two of our listeners and supporters kylie dunbar and Elizabeth Hurley were nominated, got their nominations. So uh, Liz Hurley's book, A New Life for Ariana Byrne, uh, published by Hero Books, is up for the Katie Ford Debut Romantic Novel Award. And uh, One Winter's Night, 
by Kylie Dunbar, also published by Hero Books, is up for the Romantic Comedy Novel Award. And, you know, huge congratulations to both of them. Liz dropped us a line. She says, thank you, Marks. I found Hero Books through your podcast. So thank you again. And again, I'll put a link. We did a deep dive with Hero Books. I'll put a link in that uh, for people who want to check that out. The Hero Books are just amazing. And Kylie Dunbar got back, got in touch and said, uh, the Bestseller Experiment podcast helped me so much and continued to inspire me and keep me writing. So we have got everything crossed for Kylie and Liz. A huge congratulations to both of them. Um, this is just, you know, when we started this podcast, could we have imagined we'd have so many award nominees, award winners? I mean, the only ones who haven't won anything is us. Right. So, I, you know. I, you know what? I mean, what's with that, Mr. Stay, eh? That could I mean, all that change. speaks volumes. That could all change. No, it's, it's simple maths. It's simple maths, Mark, right? We are spending so much time doing this podcast we haven't got time to to go out and you know write as many books as we could do and submit these competition <laughs> entry forms, right? That's why it is. I'm absolutely convinced of it. No, I think it's wonderful. I just want to congratulate Liz and Kylie as well. We've we, what I love about this as well is we've been following their story. Um, you know, joining joining as patrons originally. Um, I think also interestingly being inspired by other successes that some of our listeners have had, namely in, in the romance area, Lorna Cook, who's gone mm-hmm. on to incre- have an incredible career, um, winning twice um, two major RNA awards. And I mean, her career is, is, is absolutely blossoming. And this is what we always talk about on the show. This is not just about what we individually achieve. It's not about when you write a book, uh, it's not just about the amazing success of doing that one thing, getting to the end, even if even if it's never published, just the fact that you've written a book is such a huge accomplishment in your life. But if you put it out there, what you're doing is you're inspiring other people to follow you. And that's what we've now seen. We've been doing this podcast long enough that we've seen Lorna kind of, you know, torchbearer who's gone out there and won all these awards. And, you know, she started writing, you know, with, with our podcast, that was how she got in. And she said, you know, if it weren't for you, I would never have got my six figure crazy deal. I think she, she gave us as a quote. Um, but now we see Liz and Kylie kind of, you know, following in, in Lorna's footsteps and, and it's growing. It's now two, you know, there's two of them that are now nominated and, I just love this idea that when you when you go for it, when you follow your passion and you say, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this, not just for me, but I'm going to ins- do it to inspire my kids. But you then don't know who else you're inspiring. And so thank you to everyone who's who's kept at this, that hasn't given up, that's kept going. And for everyone who's still struggling through that first novel, keep going. Because, you know, once you get to the end, once you get to the end, you've then got a shot at getting that book out. And then you've got a shot of inspiring other people to follow follow in your footsteps, which which really, folks, I think that's you know when you when you when you boil it down in life, that's that's why we're here. It's not about what we make. It's not about the you know how much money we we make to, to the time we die or the success we have. It's what we leave behind, what we inspire other people to do. So I just want to commend everyone who's out there slaving away every single day, banging their heads against a brick wall because it's hard, but it's worth it in the end. So keep going. Well, let's, uh, uh, you know, we've got our 200 word challenge where we say to people, you know, we all lead busy lives, difficult lives, some more difficult than others, but find the time just to write 200 words yeah. a day and see what happens. Uh, we had a tweet from uh, Norfolk Days, who is at Simple Simon Say Nine. Uh, they've managed over 3,300 words last week, already surpassing that this week. Have to say, the advice from Mark's Day about stopping mid sentence has really helped. The 200 words a day minimum aim has also been a god- godsend. Now, I just need to put out that. Dot, dot, dot. Brilliant. Finished mid-sentence. See, that was, <laughs> that's one of my little tips, which is when I was, when I was commuting, uh, to, uh, writing on my commute, uh, I would sort of, because, you know, you, you'd feel so exhausted and the train would be coming into the station and you'd, I would just, you know, pretty much finish mid-sentence. Uh, but when I took the train home, I would just finish the sentence. And before I knew it, I was typing again and it really helped keep that momentum going, you know, when working around a, a day job. So, uh, congrats on that, Norfolk Days. And, um, public declarations. They're another thing we say that works really well. Andrew Chapman, he made a public declaration to complete the first draft of his Western Hell's Ridge. 
by Wednesday the 3rd of February. Um, he let, gave sent us a message at 2.42 a.m. He says, I'm calling it Wednesday, he's still, even though it's technically Thursday morning, and he's just typed the words, the end on the first draft of Hell's Ridge. Wow. Uh, he says, now, now to hide it away for a month while I write the next one. Now, Andrew is a big inspiration in the bestseller experiment group. He is someone who just keeps, keeps, keeps on going, keeps writing, keeps putting it out there. It's just a matter of time before he writes some smash hit. So congrats on that, Andrew. And you know, going, well done, Andrew. And if there was ever an example of why public declarations work, I mean, coming yeah. in like within an hour or two of that day and that time <laughs> is absolutely phenomenal. Congratulations, Andrew. That's brilliant. Wonderful stuff. So drop us a line, folks. Get in touch. We're on Facebook, Bestseller Experiment, Twitter and Instagram at Bestseller XP, or pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com where you'll see a contact tab and drop us a line there. We read all your emails. Absolutely. And if you want to try the 200 word challenge, it will change your life. I guarantee it. You will write more words than you've probably ever written. Um, get over to 200wordchallenge.com. And if you're interested in learning more about the Bestseller Academy, then pop over to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. You can put in an application now. The doors are not open. We are full currently, but we're saying to people, the wait list is now. Get your application in now. Get it in early. First come, first serve. Brilliant stuff. Well, listen, Mark, all the best in your next week of promoting the book on your blog. Thank tours you. and hopefully some who knows this is the fun bit isn't it this is stuff where you don't know what's going to suddenly come out somebody's going to say something about your book or you're going to get a phone call from your agent or i love <laughs> this period so enjoy it have loads of fun um and um every success moving forward with the crow folk i am stuck into it i am oh, enjoying right, oh yeah cool. i i'm i'm really i'm loving i'm loving the way you finish those chapters you learned a few things didn't you on this podcast along the way yes along yes, the yes. way right no i do I th- i've got to say i think one of the things i absolutely love about it is you you keep me on the hook you bugger i'm there trying to get some sleep and i'm like just another chapter i'm really enjoying it it's a really good book cool and stuff. it's yeah it's really cool it's different it's totally different from i mean it's still you though I can still, yeah. I can still like read I say, it's, it's, you, right? It's, but it's, co- it's cozy me. It's cozy me. It's cozy um, Mark. There's, yeah. there's, 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 a, there's a slightly disturbing horror, folk horror creep to it, but it's, it's yeah. not as visceral, visceral as the other stuff I've done. But it's, no, um, it's great. Now, people are liking it. So. Excellent, excellent. More well, to come. Enjoy, enjoy all the success it's going to have. And for everyone listening to this podcast, all right, folks, listen, this is it. This is your life. Get writing. No more excuses. Get on the 200 word a day challenge. Make this happen. Get to the end and then tell us all about it on this podcast in the future. So um, to all of you, have an amazing writing week. Uh, Stay safe, stay warm and uh, be well. And it's a goodbye from Mark 1. It's a goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. Goodbye. To read Back to Reality, the best-selling novel of the bestseller experiment by the two marks, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash back to reality. And subscribe to this podcast to get loads of extra bonuses. Go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash subscribe.